Hey everybody, I hope you and your loved ones are safe, happy and healthy. Before you listen to or watch the show, remember to subscribe and follow us on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn to stay up to date with all the latest news and updates from my legal club. If you, your family or your business need any legal support or no obligation solicitor quotes, please get in touch with us at mylegalclub.co.uk. Before you listen to the show, please note the content is for information purposes only and is not to be relied upon. Stay well, and I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Sean Rogers, and I am delighted to be joined by Jamie Pritchard, the Director of Sales at Glenhawk. Glenhawk provides short-term property finance with a strong capital base to lend, whether you are looking to acquire a new property, unlock equity in a current property, or initiating a property investment or refurbishment. On today's show, we're going to be picking Jamie's brains on property investing strategies, options to extend the property portfolio, borrowing costs, and the current property market. Um, Jamie, firstly, how are things? And also, congratulations on your recent award. Thank you, Sean. Yeah, I'm really good. Really good to be speaking to you again. Love recording these things um, just to, I suppose, help, help people because... I don't know, I've got lots of hobbies and I go, the first place I go and search is on YouTube or go and see what someone else is going to say about them. So any insight I can provide is brilliant. But um, secondly, thank you. Uh, and the award that Sean's referring to is that I just won uh, Best Ever Sales Director of Sales at the British Specialist Lending Awards. Never easy for me to say, all those S's. But um, that's a team award. And anyone who knows me knows that you cannot be a good leader or win those awards without an amazing team behind you. So Hopefully I can show you how good my Glenhawk team are. Got no doubt about that and congratulations again. Is that two-time winner now or am I doing you a disservice more than that? It, it, it is, it's twice in a row, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. You're too modest, so I wanted to make, I wanted to make sure that I raised that. Um, okay, traditional property investing. So traditionally, lots of people um, will have sort of, I guess, grown up with the basis of 25 to 30% deposit in order to secure a 70 or 75% loan to value to secure that buy-to-let mortgage, maybe with a traditional term lender. Having to put down such large deposits is a big hurdle anyway. But for those trying to get on the property ladder with the first buy-to-let, or more importantly, extend that portfolio, if you will, because you start aggregating that up with them kind of deposits, then with rising house uh, prices, it makes it even tougher. How have you seen property developers overcoming these hurdles and how does bridging offer an, an alternative? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great, great question. And um, what is traditional these days, I suppose? Everyone is um, looking again onto the internet to find ways that they can do a deal and make sure that they can buy properties maybe quickly and actually create the wealth or the business plan that they want. That wealth could be through you know, the, the yield that they get from the, the rental that they get in the future if they will retain that property. Um, there's lots of different ways. So I'll go through a list of a few of them that I think could help your property investors watching this. It could be that you get in a property that's uh, below market value uh, itself. So traditionally with a bridging lender like a Glenhawk, we can pick up those properties and actually, if it is a true below market value transaction for a multitude of reasons, uh, maybe it's need to be sold quickly. Maybe the property is just in disrepair, but also you can pick it up with a part of the deal. We can actually do that with a 10% deposit. So what I mean by that is that you can pick that up with a 90% uh, of the purchase price, as long as that's not less than 75% of the market value of the property itself. 
So that could be a great way of picking up a good deal. I'm sure we'll go into later what warnings you should look out for for these below market value transactions. But that's one way that you could pick it up. Also, bridging can really offer you a few. If you're not a first-time landlord, let's say, or don't have any security, but let's talk about somebody that may have created you know, good wealth through what they've got already in equity, then you can actually bridge against other properties in your portfolio. So don't think of anything as linear. Don't think that I'm sat here today as a developer or an investor wanting to buy that property in front of me, and that is the transaction. What else have you got in the background? What else can you actually bridge against that could actually make that, in essence, in your mind, not putting any cash down, so it's not a liquid um, purchase of the deposit, but you're actually utilizing the equity in the background as a form of your deposit. That is a great and quick way when it comes to bridging of picking up a property quickly. And also that'll put you in a really good stead with um, the buyer because bridging is the closest to a cash transaction that you can get because it gives you that speed and that ability to move quickly without the chain. So it puts you in a really strong position that way as well. Um, so raising, raising capital from another security, that's potentially just a way to do. Below market value transactions, that's another way of doing it as well. Or it could be that, yes, you still need to put down maybe 20 25% um, deposit, but actually the property that you're buying, if this is part of your business plan that you want to do, flippers, doer-uppers, whatever we're calling them out there at the market, a property that needs a little bit of TLC, we could be buying those properties and actually basing what we could lend in the future off the GDV. So it's two things here. There's got the OMV, which is the open market value, the property, what you're buying it today, the below market value, which could be the purchase price that's below that, or it could be the GDV, the gross development value. That's what the property is going to be worth after you've actually done the works and said works that's needed to do to that property. Great things can happen when you use bridging for that. And if you do it through advice and know what you're doing with it, is that you can actually lend against GDV, so your costs, so you don't have to put the liquidity down for that. And actually then when, if you wanted to keep that property, you could actually flip it out to a buy-to-let lender who could actually lend against what that property is then worth after the works. Or if you sell that property, guess what? you'll be able to sell it for what that property's worth after the works as well. So it's a great way of wealth creation. And all of those funds, if you do sell, could be used for your next purchase. And then you suddenly would have more of the 25%, 30%, whatever it may be, deposit to put down. Brilliant. And, uh, you know, a lot of the, let's call it, strategy that you see online, you know, something massively talked about everywhere. It's called the BRRR strategy. So for those who don't know, that's buy, refurbish, rent and refinance. Now, that's high risk if you don't know what you're doing, but in the right circumstances with the right execution can be very rewarding. And I want to drill down on this with you, Jamie. So the B in BRRR is buy and you watch any of the videos or, or research this at all, it's all about buying below market value when they refer to buy. So how do developers find properties? I mean, we'll use the phrase below market value, close those deals, because they're pitching that saying, oh, you know, you need to go and buy at 30 to 40% below market value. Um, let's look at it more, I suppose, in terms of how you just buy a property that could be valuable to you that's actually a good deal. How, are you seeing any typical property types or patterns in respect of why they're available 
in that kind of and a below market value, but let's call it just in, as a great deal. We're coming out of a few years of flux, obviously, but property values have been going up um, through that time as well. But also some people's circumstances may be that they want into or need to get rid of properties as well. So there's a lot of research that can go into these areas and the, the Internet can be your friend just as you're watching this over the Internet. So searching on, I call these, by the way, the holy grail. You know, the holy grail, picking up a property that's actually worth something, but you can get it 30, 40 percent below. Unfortunately, you're just not the only person looking for these properties. There's loads. So how can you get in front of the others on these? Search Rightmove and Zoopla until it's going out of fashion. Okay. Search them um, in the descending order as it was meant to be sometimes. Search them in the area that you're comfortable and wanting to buy in. And that could be, you know, not just the geographical place you live in, but somewhere where you understand and you can pick up because you'll understand that area and really what those properties are worth. Um, and then always question the value of said property on there as well. So, you know, it could be certain um, property types that they've been picking up. You asked me what, what are we seeing out there at the moment? It's wide ranging. I'm seeing quite a lot of commercial properties that could be flipped into um, residential and the PD rules. They're presenting a really good opportunity. I'm seeing a lot of either terraced or semi-detached properties that are being picked up as well. There's no real rhyme or reason or the exact same property is being picked up the right way. However, when you are searching through Zoopla and Rightmove, just as you, well, ask yourself this question, do you do this? Because if I'm searching through something and it's a property that I actually want to buy to live in, I will sometimes go past the, the one that's got the bad photo on it. Yeah, there's something that's been poorly advertised is your opportunity. If it's actually been lit up wrong on the um, photos, if the photos have just been poorly staged or actually the, 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 the property itself is poorly staged, lots of people will go past them. They're the ones that you need to be looking at, okay? Because they could be priced wrong. They may just not be having as many people actually interested in those properties. And then that's a great place to negotiate. So don't scroll past. And if you're into sort of cosmetic flipping, I always think of it the other way. If you were to sell your own property, you'd probably have the cleaners round, you'd stage it, you'd make it look as good as it was, you want it to be. Actually look for the photos where something's been staged really poorly, where the estate agent just has not taken the greatest of photos on it. They're the ones that present opportunities as well. And obviously the last one would be auctions. Get to know your auction sites, get to understand, I'm sure you're going to ask a question on this later, Sean, but it's just as a high bit without the detail, Make sure that you're comfortable going to an auction and you haven't got the syndrome of putting up your hand whenever it needs to be. So understanding what something's value is, but really explore the auctions because you'll get pre-lots, you'll get understanding of what properties and assets are going to be on there available for yourself. And that will show you actually in your areas what types of properties are coming on the market as well. Secondly, make sure that there's not a lot of the same properties on there because there could be a reason why there's a lot of those types of properties. Are they actually um, people wanting to rent them at the moment? Are they the properties that people are just getting rid of because it's just not working in that area? So lots of questions back and forth you need to be asking yourself. But Zoopla, right move, auctions, and looking for the properties that may have just slipped through the radar and through the net, they're the ones that you probably can find the best deals on. Yeah, and I suppose just going to the auctions as well as, uh, if you like, a, a, a visitor rather than 
someone looking to be directly involved, you'll be able to pick up so many things, even if you've been to, like you've just referenced, like it's actually as important the auctions in the area, isn't it? Because you'll yeah. get, like you've just referenced, it's knowing what kind of properties are coming through. Um, and obviously you get to network whilst you're there as well, don't you? And if, if you're cute about it, you'll be able to pick up a lot. You'll be able to pick up so much from just even attending, I think, in the right way. Such a good point. People who will be, and thank you for watching this video, will be you know, thirsty for knowledge. That's why they're looking at it. And I may have just told them one thing out of the hundred things I'm going to mention on this video that they may go, yeah, jump on that. You know, lots of gurus are out there trying to tell you how to buy property. And there's a lots of good gurus to use that word. There's also some gurus that have never bought a property in their life as well. Okay. But if you go to these auctions and seek out active investors, and they will give you their time. They will tell you some nugget about how they negotiate as well. So it's not just about negotiation of actually buying an auction because there's no sort of form of negotiation there. But what do they put in place after that? If there's a doing upper, what do they do with their tradesmen? What do they do with their team around them? What do they negotiate with their estate agents or letting agents if they're going to keep that property? What type of tenant do they look after? You will pick up nuggets going to those auctions. Spot on. And as part of the BRRR strategy, the R or the first one is refurbish and then obviously yeah. possibly convert, uh, yeah. maybe change the use. So what makes a good refurbishment and what makes a bad refurbishment? And can you provide some examples, please, James? Yeah, I think um, there's not one size fits all. There's not one size fits all to anything. You know, that that's why that's what makes the planets quite an exciting place. So what I mean by that is there's no such thing as a really, you know, don't go for this bad refurbishment or a good refurbishment because it could be the worst property in the world. But I could, if I've got that in my experience, knock that down and get planning and build something else up. However, where I'm getting to is you've got to understand yourself and what your capabilities, wants and abilities are in a sense. So do you know you've got the right team around you? You could be a tradesman on here who actually knows how to do everything. I'm not one of those people. You know, any DIY that I need to do needs to be then undone and done again. I'm terrible at that. Whereas, actually, if you've got a business plan and knowing how much you can spend on the property, knowing what your team's availability and capabilities are, then you can weigh up the challenges versus the end benefits at that time. I have got some tips that I would actually probably give when it comes to refurbishment. And this is not an exhaustive list, but... It's something that I would say that everybody listening to this needs to consider. So when it's a bad or good property, and I can go into examples, but, you know, get a good survey. A survey will tell you, and a building survey as well, depending on how much that property seems to need to do work, is imperative. It will highlight the major issues to do with that property itself. Um, we mentioned on a previous answer, be prepared for competition. So one of the things that I would always suggest to people is if you're in competition for a property outside of an auction, then don't be afraid of letting the vendor know, you know, maybe even via writing, why you're the best buyer, what puts you in a great place, what type of deposit you got, what type of finance, what puts you in a great place to actually buy that property and move maybe quickly for them if speed is the aim of that person selling that property. Review your budget as well. So I've had some horrors, you know, examples. And I think that Channel 4 is littered with loads of examples of people who run out of money, but review your budget. 
make sure you take note of, even if you're trying to do any, some work on that property, you know, it needs a lick of paint. It needs a new bathroom in it. Always make sure that you've taken, great as example is, taking into account even the VAT. So many times you'll get something and it doesn't even have the extra 20% written into it. It says plus VAT. Have you actually had a look at what that VAT will add on to the final bill? That's just one bit. But beware of the unknown costs. Really be aware. Have a contingency part. You know, I can think of a property that we've done in the past where everything was just going to be a lick of paint until I decided to take down some of the wallpaper and there was damp behind it. Not picked up on the valuation report. There's a cost to that that will hit my bottom line. Um, and understand where to get the best deals. Understand where to get the best deals. And that's the best deals all along the supply chain of what you want to do. So that could be the best deals for legals. Best deal doesn't mean, by the way, cheapest, but best deal to yourself and who will look after yourself as well. But if you're trying to put in a bathroom, don't go for the best bathroom in the world for it if it's in the area that you're in. So I think it's only fair if I picked on an area, Newport, where I'm from. Okay, so Newport, don't live there anymore. But would I put the bathroom in one of my properties in Newport that would I put in the same property in Kensington? No, I wouldn't. So get the deals, know where to go on eBay, know what to do with different areas where you can pick up them. And be subsidence savvy is what I'd say. Check out the, not all cracks mean that the property is about to fall down or just, uh, you know, look like you're standing on calipers at the end of it. it. But be really subsidence savvy on a property. It may be a good deal because it's not a good deal. In your mind, when you're looking at it, know what you need to do for that. Check the roofs, check the damp, as I said before. I've seen horror stories with those as well. And just prepare for those auctions as well. Prepare for them. If you're not going as a voyeur and you're actually going, what have you got to do? And my final point, which wouldn't be me if I didn't say it, would be understand the differences between permitted developments and planning. I've seen a horror story, to use your words there, Sean, where somebody has gone through absolute so much time, months of going, trying to get planning work for the property that they're looking to do an extension on, which actually they could have done in the PD, but they were never told that. So be... Um, permitted developments and planning savvy that's quite a lot <laughs> but those are my top tips no completely and i think also the thing with the refurbishments as well like you were referencing so with newport it's similar to you know the area where i where i you know live and, and have, have grown up there are certain areas where you know the ceiling if you like i think that's that's always where there are just some streets or some areas where it doesn't really matter what you do it's just never going to go over a certain yeah. price in terms of value. Um, and therefore, you need to be sensory aware of that. And then also, like you say, you've got loads of different types of refurb, haven't you, in that you've got some way you're just using better use of the space that's available. So you're knocking down walls, so like, I don't know, kitchen, lounge. And uh, Diana will come to it with HMOs in terms of maybe trying to create them extra bedrooms or maybe you're doing extensions. And then again, you know, like you say, with the extensions or anything else that you're doing on a plot of land outside it might be a, a PD or planning like you reference. So I think I think being aware of the ceiling and you always say this as well, but reverse engineering it. So to go reverse okay, well, realistically, what's the ceiling of this area? Whether I'm renting it or whether I'm selling it, what's kind of the appeal factor for them, if you will, in terms of what they're likely to be looking for? Um, and again, and then, you know, you get that with experience, don't you? But if you if you do. Nevertheless, you want to avoid complacency, even if you've got the experience, don't you? I've got a good example of one like that the other day that I sort of um, 
was talking to one of the, our developers at uh, Glenhawk about, and they were they picked up the property, and just because of the way that they like to live in a property, influenced how they actually developed this property. And actually, after the event, he said, "I wish I hadn't done what I'd done." And it's as simple as this: they had a downstairs bathroom in this terrace property, which they said no one wants a downstairs bathroom. You know, thinking at night, go downstairs and do that. So he decided to move it upstairs because that's how he would want to live in that property. Actually, that's got to go somewhere. They couldn't increase the square footage of the property, and that took away the bedroom size of one of the properties. So when they were looking to sell it, even though they had a bigger kitchen area downstairs, actually it took away, and there was only two bedrooms in this house originally, took away a lot of the square footage of that one bedroom and made it a bit less appealing to the property itself. So that's just one example of a small change which should have a lot of influence. Great advice. And HMOs, you know, they're really growing in popularity. You know, you do your research on this, pretty much every trend that you might want to look at, it, you know, it's pointing towards HMOs continuing to grow over the next couple of years. Now, when refurbishing a resi to a HMO, um, fixing any problems, uh, increasing the appeal goes without saying, but is it crucial to add more space via extensions to create them extra bedrooms in particular, like you were referencing, or is special refurbishment affected too? Like you might convert um, a room into another bedroom, you might make that lounge kitchen area, create space for a downstairs bedroom. As an example, I know someone who's looking to buy a lot of HMOs up in Newcastle. So he's going to buy residential, look to convert it into HMO. What do you think when it comes to them uh, refurbishments, Jamie? What are you seeing in terms of how, you know, does it add enough value is probably where I'm driving at this to just use, uh, you know, use the space better or should you be looking at potentially doing that extension so it is truly those, that extra bedrooms added, if you like, rather than created? It's a great question because at Glenhawk, I'm seeing a lot of HMOs come to us and conversions and refurbishments and uh, of all ilk. And I, I, thought, I was thinking as you were talking about sort of 10 different answers that I've got in this and all of them are pertinent with it. So I think to use mine and your words again, back to it, reverse engineer it. Understand the area that you're buying that HMO or that property that's going to become a HMO in and then the type of tenant who's going to be living in there as well. So if you're looking to use one of your points, to extend it and make it the most professional HMO in the world, but it's actually based for students, would you actually do that? So how much would, if you were to extend and give the extra bedroom, how much would that, and let's just say it's one bedroom for that extension, how much would that bedroom over how many times give you back the cost that you've actually put into the works of that extension? Were you able to do that extension under PD or planning? And you think of the amount of time that you won't have that property rented out versus then how much then you're going to be spending on it. So lost rent versus how much the costs are going to be. I'm not actually trying to put you off doing that if that's what an investor wants to do, just the considerations and things that you need to think about. I think if you are buying something still, and I, I've watched many a video on this and I've been you know, the source of a few of those videos still, people buy properties and don't understand that sometimes you can convert it from a C3 residential into a HMO under permitted development rights. Sometimes you can't, and then you need to have planning permission to do that. So just to buy a property, and that's called an Article 4 area, by the way, everyone, um, Salford, Southampton, Birmingham, the list goes on. However, if you're buying in one of those areas, can you actually rightly convert it? 
And under the new HMO rules that came out for licensing, which is separate to planning, by the way, you need to be thinking about those room sizes. So I've seen some horror stories, you know, where it's likely the worst landlords out there. We've all seen those programs maybe on Channel 5, Channel 4, where they're actually trying to put as many bedrooms into a property as possible. Now, remember, um, understand your room sizes. If you've got somebody who's occupying that bedroom that's going to be ten, you know, over 10 years old, it needs to be a minimum of 6.51 metres squared. And if you've got anybody that's less than that age, you cannot have a bedroom that's under 4.64 metres squared. So that's the new rules. So you have to work out, actually, if you are going to do an extension or going to utilise the space of, a, say, a living room, is it going to meet those requirements? Because guess what? You will not get a licence and you, any rent that you bring in, there's £30,000 clients for that. Okay, so that is something you really need to do. If you want to build up a portfolio of HMOs, do it correctly because you don't want to see what the fines are going to be off the back end. And make sure you go and get the licenses as well. We'll allow you to Glenhawk to lend without the license because obviously you're doing the property up and then finding a lender that will actually still allow it if you're still only applying for the license. There's some really good lenders that will allow you to do that on it as well. So... I think it's understand the tenant in the area. I think it's understand Article 4 areas. It's understand the rooms it wants and understanding actually how much you're willing to spend on it versus actually what the property should be and desirable in the area. And when it comes to, just to finish off on the, on the point of a refurb and a conversion, is you've touched on it there, but is there anything else to add in terms of what you see as, yeah, that's a great strategy, subject to execution, so in essence, them four points you mentioned in there, in particular, I guess, in terms of knowing whether to go down a permitted development route or planning, I imagine is probably one of the most critical areas. How does someone, no matter how experienced they are, is that something they can just find out online themselves or are they yeah, best they getting specialist advice on that? Oh, they can. A good, a good specialist broker, mortgage advisor should know all of this. So if I had a pot and I wanted to actually spend it on HMOs and go out tomorrow because I was anxious and I've got no patience as everybody knows me anyway, and I would do, I would delay it till a few days after that to use that timeline. I would do my homework on a lot of things. So it would be, if I actually do want to do the works to any properties and I would actually probably put together a board of the type of property that I'm going for in the areas that I want to buy it in, understand the tenancy, how much I can actually um, charge for the rent on them. I would understand if I want to do up the works because people want to live in, you know, nice properties. A good example of HMOs at the moment is that people are working from home. So not only a bed, does it have a place where you can work within that? Have you set it up so you know it's going to have good Wi-Fi? All of those areas will help you actually get more rent from a property. And then I would just do exactly what you said there. Understand the area. You can go to local councils do the research. If you're looking at three different areas, go on all of those three areas and see if you can convert from a C3 into a C4 under permitted development. Having that booklet available to you and then getting sort of schedule of works of what you would want to do and the costings for them, that would allow me in two days' time to be absolutely go flying instead of trying to buy them today. That element of research is all available on the internet, but I'm always available to help out with any of those questions as well. Cool and on. On budgets, um, typically a lot of people will say never invest more than 10% of the purchase price on a refurbishment, allow 5% potentially for purchase costs for legals, additional fees, etc. 
you were touching before on sort of almost like an emergency fund for just hidden problems that may yeah. come about, whether that's relating to the property or even potentially with legals, I guess. I mean, would you agree with that 10% purchase pro- price on a refurbishment, 5% purchase cost for additional fees and legals? Is that about right or is that wrong? I think 10%, 10 to 15% for contingency, I would always keep there. So actually buying a property and um, would I only spend 10% on the refurbishment? It really depends on where I'm buying or what the developers are buying that property and actually the state of the property at the start because it may need a lot more work done to it than 10%, but the true end value of that property is going to be exponential compared to what? So it's actually understanding, again, how much I would spend on it. 5% for cost of legals? Yeah, that's about right. That's about right to where I would put in there. These are those hidden costs and budgets that people don't really think about. Have you considered your stamp duty? Have you considered what you're going to do later on? So I've seen, again, some of these gurus say, buy them in your personal name. And I think, you know, you you suggested earlier, what happens to the people that want to get into this game now? And they may because of their tax position, and none of this is tax advice, by the way, buy it in personal names now, but later on down the road, they may want to convert that into a limited company, i.e. sell it to their own limited company. What actually are the cost ramifications that will affect your budget then? Because if you're selling it from Jamie Pritchard into Jamie Pritchard SPV, there is a stamp duty implication to doing that. Lots of customers still do not understand because they think that they are the ultimate UBO to that, ultimate beneficial owner. They're not the limited company is. So even thinking about that, in that point there, for thinking of budget, plan forward where you want to be. If you want to own 20 HMOs, reverse engineer that, where would be the best place for your tax position, the ownership structure, for what you want to do 20 um, properties forward and what would that would look like? But yeah, you know, finding a really good lawyer and that can help you with these things can be the difference between I've seen really bad lawyers out there that can cost you more. And cost you more means losing the property. Costing more means losing the rent that you would get from that property, losing what you would have gained if you would actually be able to sell that property when you acquire it. So, yeah, don't shrink, don't shirk on that sort of uh, spend, but definitely don't overspend. No, you're spot on. I think anyone, as you say, going into it would be well-placed whether to do their own research or go and speak to someone to defo get tax advice, as you say, in terms of the limited company buy to let. It's always worth speaking to a broker, mortgage broker, because again, whether you're limited company buy to let, it'll change over time, of course, but it's interesting to maybe gauge the temperature of the room to go, how easy is it for me to get mortgages right now, limited company buy to let, to do resi to HMO conversions, as an example, with not just with someone like yourself, Jamie, for Bridgman, if I want to go with, say, a term lender, is it as easy as me being an individual to that? How does gearing get affected with me being an individual versus a limited company? Is it one of the same? Do they look at it differently? You know, these kind of things are subject to change anyway. And then on the legals, I mean, a little plug for us there, of course. But like you say, there's a lot of um, making sure you've got the right firm that can do limited company buy to let anyway, alongside the lender, which can be messy, especially when you start going to some of the quirkier ones. Um, and and the more quirky you get, it's not always the case that maybe some of the things that are recommended are the best way forward for that. Um, and I wouldn't always say that you you get what you pay for. You know, just because some firms are more expensive does not mean they offer a better service. Agreed. But, um, you know, even if you're experienced in it, if you've got a quirky lender, I won't name them, it's worth picking someone else's brains. And if you want to get in touch with us anytime on that, please feel free. The... Yeah. 
they are uh, for rent. Now, any refinance on a mortgage quite often will require ownership of six months, as I understand it. And the owner will want to obviously increase the rental yield to the maximum level. I mean, you work with so many successful property developers, Jamie, experienced valuers as well. What are the common factors which help increase rental demand, rental yield, and secure the best tenants moving forwards? Great question, because, um, yeah, we're, we're lucky enough to see some really good people on how they do at the properties. And just, just for a moment when you're watching this video, think of, you know, you may be watching this from your house. Think what you like living in. Think of the sort of hotels, if you're away, like, you know, being in and what do you actually want and what's those little touches, those little touches that make that property work better than they are. That's where the best property developers, and I don't mean they're spending tons on it, are putting their houses and staging them in the right way that could increase the rental by, you know, just a few percent per month. But you start adding up those percentages over um, eight-bedroom HMO, it works. Don't just shrink up, shrink up, I'll take away the kitchen and social living area, shared living area, that, um, you know, just for an extra bedroom. Actually, that could probably get you less rent in a certain way. Don't, don't try and just put people like baked beans into a house. Think about how they want to live because this is the main bit. You know, you can have the best um, property in the world, but if you've got a flux of people just keep on coming in and out, you're going to start losing that rent per month as well. So actually getting people that will live there for a long time is the best tenants to have as well. So think about what you like living in. I bet you that's what their tenants would like living in as well, making sure all the areas are absolutely staged to the best. And then and then it's just understanding the area as well, knowing actually what yield you can get for property as well. I think we mentioned earlier, you know, you could be living in an area of Liverpool, an area of Newport that would only ever have a ceiling on what you could actually charge on that rent as well. Um, securing the best tenants, I always um, make sure that if you're not able to do this yourself, then um, go and get a good letting agent that really cares for what your plan is going forward. You know, negotiate with them, make sure that what they want to do. I, I've got away with what I've done in the past. It, it seems quite out there but I used to always if I was going to see a tenant and tenant that comes into one of my properties I'd always go and look at them and go and interview them in a sense and go and see them in the property they're currently renting or the property they're currently living in and that will show me how they treat the property they're in at the moment so if they're not treating that property well they could have the best CV in the world and they've got the best job but they're not going to look after my property again that'll hit my bottom line that will hit my bottom line. I've got a type of tenant that I like in my buy-to-lets, which I won't share on here, but they are, uh, and they stay for the longest. I've done my homework on the, the type of properties and the customers that will live there the longest. It may be that I've seen areas of Reading where actually it sets up HMOs for professional tenants. And professional HMOs is actually set up because there's not as many hotels in those areas and it's good commuter into London. And then you would need that, to, um, there's rooms to do something slightly different. They would actually probably need to look a bit more hotel-y than somebody that just wants to live there with their maybe children in the HMO or whatever it may be. Lots of different areas. I think it's just closeness to knowing what the area is, understanding what rentals out there at the moment. And actually, if you could just make that property look great, the reverse of what we said we would do on Right Move, by making that room look great, you could actually charge more for it as well. And one of the other last bits of advice with tenants that I've used in the past is that I give them 
um, and to get them to sign into a free um, ASU policy, accident, sickness, unemployment. Okay, so if they've got an accident, sickness, unemployment, they don't have to, obviously, but this is where the tents are because I don't want to lose rent and I don't want them to lose the property they're living in as well. So if they do go through a period of unemployment, which again has happened in the last two years, then actually that policy potentially could kick in and help them still live in that property and help us with the rent itself. Great advice. And the R of the BRRR strategy is refinance. Now, for want of a better phrase, in essence, that's exit. So people are looking to try and buy below market value, obviously refurbish it, then rent it. And at some point they're looking to refinance it. Now, how stable is the refinance market for those trying to employ that strategy with a view to getting a, a back-to-let mortgage? And what are the common issues you see that could be avoided where people struggle to, to get that refinance or struggle to get it on terms that maybe they could have done had they done something different? Yeah, it's good. And, uh, um, you know, refinance, we at Glenhawk do bridging. Do not think that we're never thinking about the refinance on every deal where that is the exit. We're always thinking, make sure that fits. The last thing that we'd ever want is a client who buys a property. Remember, bridging is an amazing tool for doing a property up and creating wealth yourself and creating what that property could be rented out for in this example. But we always think about the exit. Some of the things that we'll look at, um, and to answer one of your questions, is it a stable market? It is a really highly supplied market at the moment. There's a lot of buy-to-let lenders, which means that it's by proxy should be a very stable market. However, let's have a think of this. What vehicle you buy in the property in? Is that personal ownership or is it a limited company? You need to even delve deeper into that then. If it's a limited company, then you need to be thinking of how's your limited company set up? Is it a special purpose vehicle, i.e. SPV that's out there? Lots of lenders lend on that. As soon as you've got a company that may be, I don't know, Jamie Pritchard's electrical wholesalers, but I'm trying to use some of my profits and buy properties within that, that could be a trade-in limited company. Less lenders do that. Then suddenly I could have a company which is layered, less less lenders do that. So maybe my electrical wholesalers owns the SPV, but they've got shares in both. So understanding the vehicle that you're buying in, that will determine if you've got as much ability to exit it. Doesn't mean you don't, but a good mortgage broker will be able to steer you in these areas, not on the tax advice element, but on the, the, the refinance itself. Also, the vehicle you buy in, and you know, your, one of your questions was someone who wants to build up a portfolio. There's a lot of rules that people need to think about them as well. So I think you mentioned earlier about stress tests, you know, and what um, people need to do there. We need to be thinking about actually how much your rental will get and how much affordability you can get. So just because a property is worth 100 grand and you think that you can put down 25% deposit because that lender does 75%, doesn't mean you're going to get 75% because they have to do certain stress tests based on your tax position, your ownership structure, and then also what rate you're on as well, whether it's a five-year fix or two-year fix, that will determine the amount of loan that they can provide you. So that needs to be considered for the exit. Give you some examples. If you're owning personal name, it could be that you're putting 145% stress at potentially 5.5% onto the loan amount itself. All that means could mean less loan. It could be that you're buying it within limited company, not tax advice again, but that could give you a stress test of 125% at maybe 5.5. 5. 
or on a five-year fix. It could be at the pay rate of a deal. All of these things need to be considered. Then you come into portfolio territory. So there's something the Prudential Regulation Authority, easy for me to say again, which uh, came in with the rules for what I just said, which was the um, stress test, let's just call them, the ICR calculations, they're called, uh, interest coverage ratios. I hate getting into acronyms, but you would then be looking at what, if you own four mortgage properties or more in the background, including the one that you've got, then we have to stress the back book as well. So if you've got someone who wants to put down a load of less deposits on properties, they would be highly geared would they actually be able to refinance all those properties, even if the one that you've got is not highly geared, but the ones in the background are not? All of these things need to be considered. And I think all roads lead to get a really good mortgage advisor who understands buy to let, but also understands bridging. Bridging is not a dirty word. It's a vehicle to provide the solution that you need. But do not get trapped on a bridge and do not find a mortgage broker that does not understand buy to let. Yeah, good advice. <laughs> no, very good advice. And obviously getting, like you say, getting that broker that understands and works in, you know, especially a limited company buy to let as well. Um, because that's something that is a, quite a recent phenomenon, I guess. I yep. think in 2016, 2016 was the first time. So it was 2015, sorry, short jump in. 2015 is when George Osborne opened his mouth in July and said about the tax changes. And then 2016 is when it kicked in. So since then, right to when we're filming this now, um, someone in personal ownership who's got a high, who's a high rate taxpayer cannot get 100% mortgage interest relief anymore. You can still get that within limited company. It does not mean that that is the right solution for yourself. You need to consider that, both options. Most good buy-to-let brokers will understand both limited company and personal ownership. A million percent. And a lot of people have their own tax advisors or accountant anyway you might be able to assist there too. Um, but like you say, it's that perfect. If you like, it's the perfect square, which I know you can help with as well in terms of having the right broker working with the right bridging operation, which, you know, obviously we would say is yourselves. Although yeah. there are other bridging lenders out there, just I've heard. not as good, allegedly. No, <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, obviously great mortgage broker, yourselves, bridging lender, and then good legal team. And I think especially, you know, that sort of combination, you've got all the right advisors around you and you should definitely be steered the right way. Um, in terms of the dangers of, of this kind of strategy, Jamie, which one would you say is probably the biggest issue? I mean, I've seen stuff out there saying that all of them have have a place, I guess, as a danger and that one of them's location. So there might be some locations that appeal now. But maybe as the decade moves on, they won't be. So city centres, I've seen, you know, will people want to necessarily live in the city centre as much, especially working from home, technology coming in, things like that. Down valuations, um, you know, you, comment, you commented yourself, you know, even if that's in the future, when you're looking to refinance, if you're too highly geared. Um, refurbishment risks with costs and delays. Um, or maybe building your property portfolio too quickly. And like you reference, reference before, maybe, I don't know, risk profile damage in terms of being able to refinance. What you know, I know it's difficult, but if you had to pick one kind of danger of that strategy, what would you say is the one that sort of jumps off the page at you? Everything that you've mentioned there shows me the thing that we've not got that everyone wants to have, which is a crystal ball. Can we see into the future and see what my portfolio will look like against my business plan? But you have got a really good option to create a crystal ball for yourself and that comes into do with planning and business plan 
If you plan out exactly where you want to go, plan out the use of refurbishment costs, have a look at what's happening in the locality of where you are, i.e. has it got a HS2 coming through it? Has it got a ability where they're trying to make Leeds come closer to um, London by the rail links? By that, and actually what the council's planning for said areas, are they trying to build an out-of-town shopping area, which actually, and then an out-of-town business area that would take away from that city centre living? By actually understanding all of that will allow you as much ability to think this is going to be a good investment. I think the biggest area that all comes down to, and sorry, this sounds like a sitting on the fence answer is, is that by planning as much as you can, will allow you not to bite off more than you chew, okay? So thinking you can do so much, you know, buy too many at first. I've got a pot of money and I'm going to buy loads of them. Have you actually even considered getting, you know, eight bed HMO and trying, if you've got no experience, getting rents off each one of those eight people? Then it times that by 10, you know, you want 10 HMOs. Have you thought about your plan of what you're going to do with that? Have you actually thought about your plan and how highly you're geared about if one of those people doesn't pay? Can you soak that in? Have you thought about actually refurbishing? I want to do a property like this, but I actually haven't got a crack team around me and I don't even know where to do a schedule of works. So I think all of those things are important to each other, but I think it's down to the individual watching this. Do not bite off more than you can chew, but it's, nothing's risk-free. But if you plan it right, you know, that's the way to go. Brilliant. And thank you so much. That's it for this week, everyone. Thank you, Jamie, for being such a fantastic guest. And that was absolutely brilliant content and information. So thank you. Um, thank you again for listening and watching. If you want any further information on Glenhawk, please check out the website and the links below. Um, I would definitely recommend following Jamie on LinkedIn in particular. And um, we've got his links as well uh, to Jamie on LinkedIn below. Um, and you can get loads more news, updates and information from Jamie direct that way. Uh, please share and spread the word about the show. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please hit us with a five-star review. But more importantly, please stay well and take care.